0: Globe in the Garden, a podcast about the state of world language education in the state of New Jersey. I'm Julia Koch, and I am your host, as well as the Flenge Vice President of Advocacy and Outreach. Today's episode is an interview with Flenge board member Glenisha Gerardo-Moran. Enjoy. So welcome, everyone, to this episode of The Globe in the Garden. Today, we are very fortunate to be talking with the fabulous Glenisha Gerardo who is supervisor of World Languages and ESL in Piscataway. And she is a Flenge board member like myself. I was very lucky that Glenny and I came onto the board at the same time. So I'm thrilled to be in such fabulous company. So Glenny, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us today. Oh, Julia, thank you. Thank you. Um, It's a privilege. I'm humbled at the opportunity. I'm so excited to have this conversation because I think that, you know, like, well, we'll get more into that later. But anyway, so how did you um, kind of come to be both a language educator and then also how did you end up on the flange board of directors? Hmm. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that was a loaded hmm, Glennie. <laughs> i like, oh, she's going to ask them both at once. Okay. Right.
1: <laughs> Um, so as far as um, being on the flange board, I've always wanted to, to serve on the flange board, um, because I know firsthand the benefits of flange. I received the mini grant in 2007 and it changed the trajectory of my professional journey. Um, and being able to serve on the board is really just a humble gift back that that I, that I can do for everything that I have uh, received. Every Conference every session. I have always been inspired, motivated, and just really w- wanting to to do more because of my experiences with Sponge.
0: That's so. And cool. as far
1: <laughs> and as far as um how I came about to be uh, a language educator, um that that that's unique, and that's why I went hmm. <laughs> So I, I don't know. I mean, I always say this when I'm doing my my specialized presentations, but um I don't know how many people know. So I I began as emergency cert, alternate route, and my first teaching job was at Broward State Prison, which is the official name is East Jersey State Prison. Okay. Um, and I taught math and science for the GED to the men, and I was there for a bit. And you know, always, always they they would they would say, "What are you doing here? What are you like?" <laughs> <laughs> I would be like, oh, you know, because I want young. Um, <laughs> and I still want to make a difference, but I realize what that means now. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, so their response always was, well, where were you when I was 12? You know, and I heard that quite often. And after a while, I left and went to the middle schools looking for those 12-year-olds. Um, you know, because I wanted to save them all. Yeah. <laughs> um, But, you know, that's how I ended up in middle school. And so I taught special ed um, for, for a while in middle school. But my my struggle, my challenge was that it was before No Child Left Behind. And my certification is teacher of the handicap K through 12 at that time. And they put you wherever. You teach math, science, English, social studies. And after a year or two, I felt like a fraud. Um, I was trying to say a chapter ahead. Um, the kids would say, why do I need this? And I would be like, hmm, I don't know. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I would never say that, but, you know, I, I understood their, their, their first stations. Right. Um, because I was, I was passionate about them. I was passionate about learning, but I just didn't have that passion for the content Um, because I didn't get a chance to really gel with, with any content area because I was constantly being changed. Yeah. Um, so I. My um, I had major in Spanish, I took my praxis, and I became a Spanish teacher I want to say about 20 years ago. Um, and it's the best thing I did because I get to be in, in the world language classroom with a special ed background. Um, and that gives me a set of skills that has helped me tremendously. Um, then of course, later on, I got my ESL, of course, now
0: I'm, I'm an administrator. Um, but yeah, that's my my language journey. <laughs> that's that's so cool. And I think that's one of my favorite things about being on the flinch board is that we have such like a diversity of experiences. You know what I mean? Like it's really just unparalleled. Like I remember you mentioned the mini grant that you won and I remember going to your presentation and just being <laughs> so excited about what you were doing. And I was like, oh, maybe this is something that I could do. You know, like it's you learn so much and I just keep thinking as I as I get to talk to people, like how it just widens your scope a little bit more with each presentation. So I'm hoping that we can capture a little bit of that for the people listening today. Mm-hmm. So that, that um, mini grant really just opened a lot
1: of doors for me and yeah. really stretched me as an individual. I, I had a plan. I had a, an idea. Um, but the the gift was that I got to spend a year figuring it out before I had to, you know, pr- present on it, and, and what a gift it was! You know, it really was a, a gift.
0: Yeah, that's oh, that's amazing. I feel like I'm gonna be just like by the end of the presentation, I'm just gonna be like, yes, Glenny, yes. <laughs> You're very kind. <laughs> so, what what was your own language learning experience like?
1: So I I came here when I was five. I came here from Puerto Rico. I spoke no English. Well, I could count to ten, and I knew my colors, um, and I could say hello. (laughs) So that was low. Um, But there, there, there was no ESL. I had, I was just completely immersed in the language, and I had to to figure it out. Um, And they didn't like my accent, so I had speech services. Um, from first grade to third grade um, because I realized much later after conversations with mom that I didn't have a speech impediment. It was just that I had an accent because English was not my first language at the time. Um, And then, so I also took French. I don't know if any people know that. I took French from seventh grade to 11th grade um, in the 70s and 80s. And that was audiolingo, memorizing a lot of paragraphs, just just we so believe the do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, lots of verb charts, con- you know, conjugating all that fun stuff. Um, and then in college, I took Italian. Okay. I took, uh, I had a friend whose mom didn't speak a whole lot of, of English, and I took two semesters of Italian. Um, and what I realized that I had five years of French and can barely sustain a, a conversation. But my two semesters of Italian, because I was going home on weekends and trying to speak with my mom's friend, my what I've retained with Italian is way more than, wow. than I did. Yeah. So so when I started teaching, and we were moving, you know, and I um, at the time at, at the district I was in, we were moving away from the chapters to thematic units. It made complete sense to me. Yeah. Because I was looking at the chapters and going, Oh, that was my French experience. And then I was looking at the thematic units and the proficiency based approach and I'm going, That was my Italian experience. And I was excited because I was able to use my Italian. Right. You know my, my French was a struggle. Um it was just very boxed in and, and structured. I didn't feel like I could do what I could do with Italian that I that I could do with French. Um <clears throat> and I actually didn't did not take a formal Spanish class until college. Wow. That's I Learn to, to read and write the language. I, you know, I of course spoke, you know, we spoke it at home all the time and everything. But as far as, you know, literacy skills,
0: college. That's when I finally learned my language. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. That's like you, just in your experiences, hit the whole gamut of like early childhood language education, the audio lingual <laughs> method, thematic units, like literacy in college. That's so cool. You've like, you've got the experiences of like 12 people just in your. Your lifetime of language learning. <laughs> that was the reason why I was like, hmm, do you have an hour? No. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> we got all the time in the world. No worries.
1: But so, I feel that um, my experiences, my, my background really just have afforded me a unique perspective. Um, and and they, it helps me so much. It helps me with,
0: with so many um, situations because of my, my unique background. Definitely. And that's why I'm so excited to get to have this, like, you know, when I was when I was sitting down to to come up with, you know, some topics of conversation for us today. I knew we wouldn't need many because both both you and I can talk with the best of them. But I knew that you were the person I wanted to ask about this idea of language being for everybody. Because I knew that this was a cause that was really like near and dear to your heart. So why, why do you think that this cause resonates with you as much as it does?
1: For very personal reasons. Um, high school was easy for me. I was in a top 10%, National Honor Society, you know, all that good stuff. Um, but when I went to college, I struggled. It was hard. Um, basically it was a disaster as far as doing well ac- academically. Um, I didn't know how to learn in that setting, which in the in the 80s, he was, you know, just lectures, lectures. Yeah. Um, in addition, I was working so I could afford it to be at a college um, while trying to be involved. And, you know, I was in the marching band. Um, I didn't have many people in my family to to help me with my college experience as my mom was the only one with a college degree my grandmother only finished second grade and the other one maybe first um so I had a lot of emotional support I had a lot of people who had my back but not very many people to turn to to go hey how do I figure college out because it's different than, than high school and you I'm struggling. Um, you know, and you know, it it's reflected in my grades. I I did not do well my first two 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 years. Um so I had to I had to figure it out with a lot of trial and error. Um <clears throat> I had to experiment and I essentially ended up developing my own study method. Um I learned to take my notes, make an outline, make an oral recording on a cassette. That's it. <laughs> Um, and then I would listen to to that recording, and years later, when I was you know studying for um, my students with disabilities certification, um, I learned that this method is actually a thing. Right. <laughs> Apparently, I was onto something. Right. Um, but I've 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 always been fascinating with metaphysicians. Um, I've always been fascinated with how the brain is wired and how it learns. Um, that that. That inspires me. That that gets my attention. Yeah. Um. And interestingly enough, um. You know, that was that was my struggle. Um. But now, as, as a mom, um, both my sons have IEPs. So you know, I, I've been presenting on this. Ooh, I don't know, fifteen years. Um. Uh, my sons are ten and twelve. Um. And now I'm I'm grateful for that experience because I, I'm able to to help them, um, in their journey.
0: Right. That's amazing. So. I find that something that is, you know, devastating, especially for somebody who knows of the importance of languages and how, you know, the the amazing things that it can do for you. And we could talk for hours on that, you know, empathy and intercultural competence and like all of these really cool, you know, more knowledge of yourself in the world. And so often we see that kids, especially kids with IEPs or kids who need speech therapy, get locked out of second language learning at some or at all levels you know for for more practice with their first language. So what mm-hmm. what would you say to people who think that that those kind of interventions in place of a second language are necessary?
1: I firmly believe that if you can learn one language, you can learn a second. Yeah. I mean that that's my my gut um belief. Um we know that we learn when we have multiple encounters with information and context. And there's evidence that we learn best when by encountering that information content repeatedly in different ways. So if the brain is figuring out language, what is language? Why not have two different encounters with language systems? Um, You know, what better way for the brain to figure out what is language than to experience language learning in two different language languages? Because, you know, I, I, I reflected on this and I, you know, I I didn't have an IEP growing up, Um, but I, as you know, I was immediately immersed into a dual language world at the age of five and then, um, you know, French and everything. And then I wonder, did that help me all along with whatever, um, you know, learning uh, issues I I would have had if I hadn't had all those language exposures?
0: Right. And, you
1: know, I almost almost made that mistake with with my own son. Um, when I started noticing that he was having difficulty um, developing literacy skills, I backed off the Spanish for for a bit, and then I was like, "What am I doing? <laughs> this go against everything I believe." You know, yeah. so I, or, you know, <laughs> right, <laughs> um, you know, because I can see how that that is an instinct, you know, where you're just like, "Oh, you know, you got to really develop this." Right. Um, no, oh, no, because you know, we we are we're wired to learn language. That's who we are as humans. Yeah. Um. So we don't need to sacrifice that experience i mean the richness you get the the beauty you know from from learning a second language all the doors that that
0: opens everyone should have that everyone should have that it's so true and i think that the more information that comes out like it just continues to refute that idea that if that learning a second language is somehow a detriment to your first language. You know, we've Mm -hmm. got kids who are being raised bilingual, and yeah, it takes them a little bit longer to start producing, but when they do, they're producing twice as much as a monolingual kid. You know, like their lexicons are so much bigger. And they might be mixing languages, but that ends really quickly, and then they've got all of those benefits. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, my English got so much better when I started learning French. You know, just yeah. because my vocabulary grew because there were so many overlapping languages, and I learned stuff about my first language from learning a second language. That's exactly. It's I mean, just so. Yeah, I
1: know we can go on. The, uh, I, I know on
0: this. I know I'm sitting here like, okay, Julia, we get it. Like,
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm, and I will share that in, in my in my teaching experience. I I have taught a a, a huge variety of students with learning differences. You know, I've, I've taught students who are blind. Um, I, have taught, I have taught students who are nonverbal, um, you know, that, that student was getting the input and I had to be creative to find another way for her to have output, um, you know, and, and it required thinking outside the box. It required me sitting at my desk and going, okay, how do I help her? Okay, how this, this, this can be done, um, you know, and that's just the stretch that we need in order to afford this opportunity to all learners. You know, we just have to think outside the box a little bit and and stretch our imaginations in order to make it possible because I really do believe it's possible.
0: Yeah. So I think that we've done a really good, like, good job of convincing all of our listeners that everybody should have a second language. So now I'm sure that we've got some people who are like, okay, but I don't, I don't know how to do this. Like, I've never, you know, explicitly taught to students with learning differences. So if you were going to recommend some, you know, some activities or some additions to a teacher's toolbox specifically for students to address learning differences, what kinds of things would you recommend? So the first tool you need is
1: empathy. You know, be, before yeah. you, you learn something specific or you learn a strategy or you, you learn an activity, activity um, you, you need to put empathy in, in your toolbox and it needs to be in every part. It needs to melt into the toolbox and it needs to touch every tool that you have in your teacher toolbox. Yeah. Um, one thing I, I try to share is realize that by the time a child is getting into, let's say, ninth grade um, and they've been struggling, they've been struggling for a long time. Yeah. And if you think about it, you know, there's 180 days a year and now it's been eight years. They've been struggling for 1,440 days. Holy crap. And when you add that it's six hours a day, they have been in an environment where it's not easy for them for 8,640 hours, where they know they don't learn like the others. Yeah. Um, and what that experience is like for them and whether or not they're able to be confident and positive and believe that they can. That's that that's us. Yeah. That's us as teachers, um, to help them wire, rewire their self-talk, their their messages. Um, I'm a big fan of Renee Brown. Um yes. about how to... Yeah. Oh
0: Brene <laughs> Brown. I know,
1: I know she's fabulous. Yeah. Um we're doing um a book study with um me and some other administrators and we're just loving it, loving the experience. Um you know, we need we need to have courageous classrooms. We need to know the difference between shame and guilt. Um, and just very quickly, you know, shame is when a student gets, like, if they get an F as a result, you know, they, they say things like, I'm so stupid. I'm so stupid. I should have studied. Right. Um, whereas guilt is, oh, it was really stupid of me not to study. And we have to teach kids the differences be, um, between those messages. And, by the way, that example I totally stole from Brene. I love um, it. <laughs> But you know, it, it's perfect. It's a perfect example. Um, we need kids to to realize that they are great, but sometimes they make bad choices. You know, and that sets a whole different mindset for how they're going to be like in our classrooms. Because if they realize that there's a difference between being a great kid and making bad choices and just being a kid who can't, then they'll take those risks in our classrooms and and they'll try and they'll try. Um, we need to help. Kids develop rising skills, um, the ability to get back up when they when they fail. You know, the, learning a world language means you have to take risks, you have to be vulnerable, you have to be willing to not sound that great because you're trying to put the pieces together. It, yeah. it requires a, a lot of uh, on, on the learner to to be vulnerable and be willing to make those mistakes. But as teachers, we have to have that empathy to say, okay, I like that. Yeah. You know, let's try this. You know, like that. That's that's our responsibility. Um, it's our responsibility to believe that every kid de- deserves this. And I and I know it's hard. You know, and I and I hear people say you can you know you can bring a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. And I and um, and I know that, but um, you can't force them. And and I know we're not allowed to shove them in the water either. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but Sherry Quinlan um said something. Uh, several years ago that really inspired me. Um, we were talking about this saying, And she said, um, yes, you can, can eat a horse to water and you can't make them drink, but you can make them thirsty. Oh. And that always stuck with me because it reminded me, you know, that, yes, it's our job to make them thirsty. It's our job to make them want it. It's our job to move them away from being compliant learners um, to being motivated and, and inspired. You know, compliant learners are great. You know, they do everything. You know, you want them to do, but how much do they really retain? Yeah. You know, we want the kids who who are going to be in it for the long haul, who are going to acquire the language, not just memorize and um, you know and spit things back out. Um, the the second tool we need is to just really reflect on our on our personal practice. Um, how are you presenting material? Um, what kinds of encounters are students having w- with the material that you're giving to the students? Um, we, we need to find ways to help the students make sense of the information, which may mean going outside of our comfort zone. You know, we have our ways that we learn. We have our ways that we like to do things. Um, but if we're trying to reach all learners, we have to step outside of ourselves and remember that we already got our, high- in our degrees. We already are on our journey. We need to make a difference for their journey because the experiences they have in our classrooms really can impact their personal trajectory in in the future. Um, So, you know, we have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable and think about how. How we're putting those lessons together what kinds of encounters and you know so maybe I don't like to sing but I'm going to pretend I do so I can reach those learners who are going to make that connection I can't draw I've been drawing the same um, things forever so I've gotten really good at stick figures right. um, but, <laughs> okay, 25 years of practicing my stick figures um, <laughs> I have lots of details now though yeah. um, but you know I because I'm always in awe of artists mm-hmm. you know but What they're able to do is amazing, Um, you know. But that's not my comfort zone. But I have to, I have to include that um, in order to be a a responsible, you know, educator. Um, And the third tool, which is probably what the question was asking at first, is you know, we really have to, you know, get to know accommodations and modifications. Um, We have to get past the belief that it's fair, or you know, or or not fair um, to do them. Um, My favorite analogy is. If someone is questioning, you know, whether doing these accommodations and and strategies are fair, is you have, you tell them there there are three children. One is about to vomit, one scraped their knee, and the other one has a horrible headache. And if, you know, if you want to follow that being fair mentality, well, then you have to give each one of those children a Band-Aid. Because you have to get them all the same. And then people, you know, start you know, making that connection. My other favorite analogy is the one, um, for the restaurant that was shared with me with a professor in college. Um, you know, imagine that you're at a restaurant and someone is choking, you know, and I know the Heimlich maneuver and I think about it and I walk over and I was like, you know, I know you're choking and you you might die. Um, but I don't know if I can give you the Heimlich maneuver because if I give it to you, i gonna have to give it to everybody in this restaurant. And that's really gonna take up a long time. Um. <laughs>
0: that's amazing.
1: You know, and I share these because I think they help open the doors to, to what is fair, um, to, to reflection. Um, that, that they're, you know, I, I like I know, I know they're funny, but, um, well, you get it. <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> and the other, um, regarding accommodations and modifications, is to understand what an IEP um, represents. Um, an IEP does not represent a, a lack of intelligence. Um, each individual child with an IEP, their learning experience journey needs, um, they're all very, very, very different. And you know, so you need to learn about different accommodations and modifications because what works for one child may not work for for another and the, the way to do that is yes attend things but also just talk to people what's the child what works for them yeah ask the parent. no um ask the previous teacher you know just don't assume that all the accommodations are going to be the same you know and I'm going to use my boys as, as an example um I have two sons um one has a high average IQ but he has dyslexia and processing issues um the other one has a much higher IQ, Um, he's a little too smart, Um, (laughs) and has um, executive function issues, um, which in layman's turn is short-term memory. Okay. Um, You know, their their needs are very, very, very different. You know, for my son with dyslexia, you can't tell, you can't give him an open book um, assessment as an accommodation. He can't do that. Right. Right.
0: It's not helpful for him.
1: No, no, you know, so that's, you know, like I, I just want to send that message that I know that sometimes if we don't know enough about it, you know, we, we categorize it into one category, but just, but when you're reading that, um, the accommodations in, in the IEP, just think about what that means. Think about what that specific child means. Um, have those conversations with people who have worked with them before to see, to see, you know, what has been successful because why should you reinvent the wheel? Find out what wheel works. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's you know just look look into what 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 the the children need in in order to to serve to serve them best. And yes, it may mean it, you know it's a little extra work. Um, but what I really have learned over the years is that everything we do to help students with
0: learning differences really helps everybody. It's true, you know it, it 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 does. Yeah, I think one of the things that has stuck with me the most is when I when I did those things. Um, to intentionally get myself out of my comfort zone. Because I would always tell my students, you know, if you don't feel a little bit ridiculous, you're probably not doing it right. Because you know, <laughs> like you said, like language ta- means a lot of risk taking. And I was like, well, I got to walk the walk. So I'm going to do slapstick in the front of the class when we're doing, you know, when we're learning actions, and I'm going to draw my terrible stick figures. And I'm going to, you know, like, do those things to make everybody comfortable. But when I did something that had an emotional component to it, it, it did stick better with all of the kids, not just mm-hmm. with a certain segment of the population. They were all more likely to remember it. And I was like, oh, I've got to do that more often because that's a, like that makes me a more effective educator for everybody, you mm-hmm. know, and I think that's so true. So yeah, and if, I, I just find that. Well, yeah, of course. If,
1: and the reason I didn't talk about specific specific strategies because there's so many, you know, yeah. there's so so, hard. you know, that if 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 someone is looking for something specific, talk to you know the the specialized teachers, talk to the English language arts teachers, you know, talk to people, have those conversations because that's how you're going to learn more.
0: Yeah. And I think, too, you know, like we know that nothing is new under the sun when it comes to teaching. Like, why reinvent the wheel? So, like, learn from your previous self, too. If you have a kid that has a specific, you know, like maybe they have dyslexia and you spend a whole year trying different things and figuring out what works for them. If you have another kid the next year who also has dyslexia, maybe you ask them how they'd feel about the same you know, the mm-hmm. same activities, you check in with them. Did this work for you? Because, you know, like there's no reason to start from scratch every year with every single kid. Yeah. <laughs> and I know for me, what really worked was just um, what I realized that what
1: I had done in, in college, my, my study method, was that I had figured out to give my brain different pathways w- with the same information, you know, because I made an outline. Um, I read it. Um, out loud onto on a recording and I was li- listening to it, um, you know, just so if keep in mind that the different encounters we, we need to have, which is just really just good teaching, um, that helps a lot, you know, thinking yeah. about the encounters we're, we're
0: having, um, with the content that we're teaching. It's so true. I think that a lot of teachers, uh, like I know I was very good at doing school when I was in high school. That's one of the reasons that we come back to school is because we're good at it <laughs> and we like it there. So what uh You know, you already mentioned some amazing tools, um, but are there any other understandings that would really be helpful for us to embrace if we're looking to effectively teach learners who don't learn like we do? I,
1: I think um, reflecting you know it's going to go back to you know, to what I was said, to what I said before um, Read uh, about Brene Brown. Yeah. um, you know what she is um sharing is is tremendous. um, think outside of the box, you know be be reflective, be honest um there there's a saying that I have followed for a really long time, and it helps me guide um the one by Maya Angelou, about you know we do the very best we can until we know better. then when we know better, we do better. Yes. um and so I think what we need to embrace is that it's okay. That maybe we don't know it all, Um, and it's okay that maybe we haven't served students as best as we could have in the past. You know, you do the best you can with what you have. But once you realize that you could be doing better, then you owe it to yourself and you owe it to your students to learn, to reach out, to discover. So you can do better. You know, I think that's what we need to embrace. Um, That the second you realize that you know. Hmm, maybe I don't got this. And you have a responsibility to grow as an individual and strengthen your practice by, by learning more and reach out and have those conversations with people.
0: So good, Glennie. Gosh, so good. It's so good. (laughs) So, as you know, um, to, to kind of take a little bit of a detour, um, because the theme of our podcast is "The Globe in the Garden," we end with some kind of plant related question, just for fun. so okay. what what would you say is your favorite flower?
1: Hmm
0: well, I'm glad you're not asking me about gardening because I could feel. <laughs> <laughs> you're not the first person to tell me that. I just want to say <laughs> So, instinctively,
1: I I think of Gerber daisies, but my, you know, it's a toss-up between Gerber daisies and sunflowers, Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm going to go with with sunflowers. Um, Sunflowers are fabulous because they they grow strong, they're tall, they're resilient, tenacious, Um, and they get that way because they turn towards the sunlight in order to grow, and it reminds me of how important and how valuable and how critical it is to surround ourselves with people, experiences, and environments that will help us grow.
0: That was beautiful. And I'm going to put it on a greeting card as soon as humanly possible. Oh, <laughs> oh my goodness. It has been such a pleasure talking with you today, Glenny. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your expertise oh. with everybody. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you
1: for letting me have a voice. Um, and I, I, I hope I've been able to help a, a person or two.
0: <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of The Globe in the Garden, a Flenge production. To stay up to date on future episodes, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcatcher and on the Flenge YouTube channel. Intro and outro music is Little Idea by Scott Holmes. I'm Julia Koch. See you next time.